Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for April 4th through 10th, 2022. This is covering Exodus chapters 14 through 17. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hello, Scriptures. You look very liberating today. It's exciting. (laughs) And now, let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 20 minutes, 4 seconds. Oh, not long at all. How much would that be daily? 2 minutes, 52 seconds. My goodness, so easy. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it chapter by chapter. Otherwise, buckle up and let's talk about them all together. Last week, we had huge, miraculous events that were described in that lesson, and it led to the Israelites being freed from bondage and being led to Sukkoth in Exodus chapter 13. As we begin Exodus 14, notice where the Lord takes them next. Let's look, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pi-hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon, before it ye shall encamp by the sea. Well, Pi-hahiroth? Where the heck is Pi-hahiroth? Look at the map. Now, isn't the Lord supposed to be leading them to the promised land of Canaan? This is not the way. Hmm. Unless the Lord has something else in mind he needs to do before they get to the promised land. So, Let's go on and see what happens. In chapter 14, verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, just a reminder of what we've talked about in the last few lessons. The Joseph Smith translation in Exodus 14.4 footnote A says that the Lord did not harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's important. Going on in verse 5. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand, but the Egyptians pursued after them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihahiroth, before Baal-Zephon. Okay, so once again, Pharaoh has changed his mind and is pursuing the Israelites. Quick thought, verse 7 mentions 600 chosen chariots. What beasts are driving these chariots? Remember that two of the plagues pretty much destroyed Egyptian livestock. Remember that the plague of hail destroyed the livestock unless it was brought indoors. Chapter 9, verse 20 told us, He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. 
I rather suspect the beasts that would later drive the chariots were part of this preservation. And to what end? Now the people of Israel are trapped at Pi-Hahiroth. The Red Sea is to the east, and the approaching Egyptians are at the west. Well, maybe. Notice that the map in the study helps has a question mark beside Pi-Hahiroth. Scholars aren't completely certain where that was. The important thing, though, is that the people of Israel were trapped between the Red Sea on one side and the approaching Egyptians on the other. Right. And what was their reaction? Let's take a look in verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So the people are understandably panicking, but Moses reassures them. Going on in verse 13, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Consider for a minute, How have you seen the Lord fight for you or for someone you know? Reflect on that. Did you feel like you were up against impossible odds? Going forward, look for the ways the Lord fights for his people. Now, while Moses' words are true, the Lord will take this several steps beyond. Look what the Lord tells Moses in the next few verses, starting in verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. Now notice the Lord's encouragement. The children of Israel are to go forward. Moses is to lift up his rod and divide the sea. Pharaoh will harden his heart. But in the end, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, as he says in verse 18. In verses 19 through 20, the angel of the Lord that had been leading the way is now going behind the children of Israel. Verse 20 gives us some pronoun trouble, but check your footnotes. The Joseph Smith translation clarifies that it was a cloud and darkness to the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to the Israelites. Right. Notice how the Lord is fighting for his people, even in their fear, and encouraging them to go forward. Now, when you think of the Red Sea parting, you may envision 
this. The Lord of hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. Or even this. Now, those are pretty cool, but let's look at the actual words given to us in Exodus. Starting in verse 21 And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. All that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. So, wait a minute. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and what happened? There was a strong east wind that blew all that night. I wonder sometimes if I had been there when Moses stretched out his hand, it might seem that nothing happened. Maybe the wind kicked up, but that could probably have been seen as an additional unpleasantness on top of a bad situation. Yeah, notice how he describes it. The east wind. That's a phrase used throughout the Old Testament as a force of destruction and woe. It's the wind that blows across the Arabian deserts, bringing with it hot, dry air. In Genesis 41, the east wind brought the seven-year famine in Pharaoh's dream. And in the plagues we studied just last week, the east wind was what brought the locusts in Exodus 10. Now it is again bringing doom to those who would fight against Israel, as we will see. Right. All that night, the wind is parting the sea, so that the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left, and the wind is drying the land left exposed. My thought is that the phrase, all that night, might imply that this miracle was not as instantaneous as it is often depicted. Obviously, it makes for better drama, if it were, but it makes for a greater trial of faith for the children of Israel if their solution took some time. Just a thought. Well, the Egyptians seem undeterred by this miracle, and they intend to pursue the children of Israel into the temporarily dry sea. But the Lord begins to fight their battles, as Moses promised. Let's go on in verse 24. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians. This means that it threw them into a panic. Going on in verse 25, and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Now, it might even seem silly to us that the Egyptians would be so frightened that their chariot wheels had fallen off, but consider they had 600 chariots, even, as it says, chosen chariots, as they were called. This was likely the best of their best. 
Now, maybe one of the chariots would lose its wheels, or maybe two or three chariots, perhaps there's an outside chance of that, but all 1,200 wheels falling off of the chariots? It should be pointed out that there's another way that this could be playing out. Earlier versions of the story say that the wheels were clogged, like in the Samaritan versions, or in particular the Septuagint in Syriac. These translations say that the wheels were bound or clogged. But the Hebrew indicates the wheels were removed. Now, there's another way we could understand that. Later in the book of Judges, we're going to see another story where chariots had a huge military advantage, but because the wheels were clogged, they lost that advantage. So this may be another way of saying that for whatever reason, the wheels were bound and they removed the chariots as a military technological advantage. But either way, the point is, things are falling apart for what the Egyptians felt were their advantages over the Israelites. Right. And I suspect that this, along with the miracle of the parted sea, along with perhaps other attacks the Lord may have made, or perhaps just the spirit of the occasion, caused the Egyptian army to cry, The Lord fighteth for them. So true. Remember last week that it was not just the Israelites following Moses. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 tells us that this group, the group that followed Moses, was a mixed multitude. So there were Egyptians and, as the NIV translates it, many other people, perhaps converts since the events of the plagues were following Israel. Hebrew scholar Shaul Bar makes the case that the Hebrew word translated here as mixed multitude means armed mercenaries. This was in a paper published by the National Association of Professors of Hebrew. I'll put a link to it in the description if you're interested in reading it. But if this conclusion is true, it adds even more power to the promise that the Lord will fight for them. They may have had armed mercenaries, but it will not be by the hand of man that they will win this battle. It's interesting that the Egyptian army sees that as well. They recognize it is the Lord that fighteth for them. So once the Israelites are on the other side, let's see what happens. Verse 26, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, And the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned, and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. Now, while I'm not sure if the Red Sea divided instantly, or over all that night, I don't have any problem with the notion that the water returned instantly. The Egyptians had obviously worked their way far enough into the sea. They have no functional chariots now, and most likely it would take too long on foot to make it to shore before these walls of water collapsed. The end of the chapter gives us two glorious verses of victory, starting in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So, wow, what a day! 
And what an image! Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. I wonder which seashore? Remember, it's natural to think that the Israelites may have seen on the now distant shore by Pihahiroth bodies that have washed up out of the sea, but I wonder if the Egyptians had made it further than we thought. Perhaps some washed up near the seashore next to the Israelites. Well, and considering the lives needlessly lost, one may also feel sad for the Egyptians. But any of them could have followed the Lord and joined Israel. That door was always open. What we see here is the fate of those who chose to fight against the Lord. Similar to those in the great and spacious building in Lehi's dream, when it describes it as great was the fall thereof. Let's make sure that we are not among those people. Right. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may have realized, wait a minute, the chapter heading and Jay and John say that the sea they crossed was the Red Sea, but the sea is never named in the chapter. And if you did realize this, well done. To make matters more confusing, the next chapter, when the children of Israel are singing the Song of Moses, they do specify the Red Sea in verse 4. But look at footnote 4c. It says, Read Sea. What's that about? From the Institute Manual, we get this insight. Some modern scholars have argued that Moses did not take Israel directly to and then through the Red Sea proper, the Gulf of Suez branch of the Red Sea but rather through the Reed Sea, since in Hebrew, Yam Suf means the Reed Sea. These scholars believe the area crossed was a marshy lowland near the Bitter Lakes. They maintain that the chariots of the Egyptians bogged down in the mud and then the soldiers drowned when higher waters came in. But Latter-day Saints have information that the Exodus account is correct. Both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants state directly that it was the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14 verses 22 and 29 says that the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left, certainly implying more than passing through a marshy area dried by a sudden wind. It's so great to have additional revelation, isn't it? So helpful. Well, yeah, and interesting to note also the Septuagint, remember that's an older record than our current Hebrew manuscripts, agrees with the Book of Mormon and calls it the Red Sea. It may have been changed in the later Hebrew manuscripts for literary reasons. Moses was saved from a watery death by a reed basket. And again, he and his people are saved by a reed sea. But Professor Robert D. Miller II makes this observation, quote, The tendency to want to find naturalistic explanations that support literal historical reading of the text extends to how people read the crossing of the sea. Scholars in the 20th century invented a body of water called the Sea of Reeds. It doesn't exist. If your Bible states in Exodus 15.4 that the Israelites crossed the Sea of Reeds, it is bought into this scholarly construct. The best Bible translations left it as Red Sea. Nice. Well, that brings us into chapter 15. As we mentioned previously, verses 1 through 19 are the Song of Moses. This appears to be an inspired song of celebration of the Lord's victory through Moses in bringing the people out of bondage from Egypt. Let's start with verse 1. 
Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now later in the chapter, starting in verse 20, Miriam also adds a verse. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Now a timbrel, by the way, is an ancient percussion instrument similar to a modern tambourine. It's a hand drum, but also has additional elements around it to rattle and make additional noise. There are two phrases that are interesting to me in the introduction of Miriam in verse 20. First, she is called the prophetess. This would imply that she has the gift of prophecy. Also, notice that she is called the sister of Aaron. Why not Moses? She's Moses' sister, too. I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's something as simple as Aaron being the older brother of the two. Remember we learned in our last lesson that Aaron is three years older than Moses. And as John points out, Miriam being a prophetess, she's not the only one in the Old Testament. There are various women that are called specifically prophetesses, but then there's other women that we will see who have the gift of prophecy, who prophesy. And so, yeah, pay attention for that as we go along. So Moses and the children of Israel made it through the Red Sea. Now what? In verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Notice in the footnote 23a, it tells us that the name Mara means bitterness. We're not sure exactly what the problem of the water was, but whatever it was, they couldn't drink it. Right. Also notice that the people murmured. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. This verse contains the first of over 20 uses of the word murmur in its various forms in the record of Israel's wanderings. Murmuring seems to have been a dominant part of their natures and a root of some of the problems they faced. The word is used nearly the same number of times to describe the attitude of the rebellious members of the Lehi colony who traveled through the same general wilderness area after leaving Jerusalem. Murmuring is defined as a half-suppressed muttered complaint Instead of open expression of concern and criticism so a problem can be dealt with, it is behind-the-scenes grumbling. That problem was not unique to the Israelites or to Laman and Lemuel. It is too often prevalent among Latter-day Saints today. Elder Marion G. Romney said, quote, I desire to call your attention to the principle of loyalty, loyalty to the truth and loyalty to the men whom God has chosen to lead the cause of truth. I speak of the truth and these men jointly because it is impossible to fully accept the one and partly reject the other. 
I raise my voice on this matter to warn and counsel you to be on your guard against criticism. It comes in part from those who hold or have held prominent positions. Ostensibly, they are in good standing in the church. In expressing their feelings, they frequently say, we are members of the church too, you know, and our feelings should be considered. They assume that one can be in full harmony with the spirit of the gospel, enjoy full fellowship in the church, and at the same time be out of harmony with the leaders of the church and the counsel and directions they give. Such a position is wholly inconsistent because the guidance of this church comes not alone from the written word, but also from continuous revelation, and the Lord gives that revelation to the church through his chosen leaders and none else. It follows, therefore, that those who profess to accept the gospel and who at the same time criticize and refuse to follow the counsel of the leaders are assuming an indefensible position, end quote. Good point. Now, while that may seem to have been something that you would have heard in a recent conference, this was from the April General Conference of 1942. <laughs> wow. Eighty years ago. Yeah. Well, and if you remember our study of the Doctrine and Covenants last year, you know that the people of God have always struggled with this. Yep. Let's go on in chapter 15, verse 25. And he, Moses, cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Now note the Lord's solution. The Lord shows Moses a tree, and when they cut it down and cast it into the water, the water becomes drinkable or sweet. There's a powerful declaration there in verse 26, For I am the Lord that healeth thee. How profound is that phrase for us even today? Yeah, and I love the imagery of God taking something bitter like me and making it sweet. It reminds me of Lehi's description of the fruit from the tree in his dream, which represented the love of God. That fruit was most sweet above all that I ever before tasted. What a great lesson. Mm -hmm. So as we read in verse 27, they came to a place called Elam, which isn't called that today. And no, we don't know where that is for certain either. It's a safe bet, though, that it's east of the Red Sea. This place has 70 palm trees. Remember that score is 20, so three score would be 60. And 12 wells of water. Coconuts for all. Woo! Okay, well, it doesn't specifically yummy, mention yummy, coconuts, delicious per se. coconuts. Woo! Well, I suppose there there maybe that maybe there could have been. Oh, coconuts. Okay, all right. Well, moving on. Exodus chapter 16. 
Now, the Israelites travel from Elam. And its lovely coconuts. Okay. To the wilderness of Sin, which is evidently between Elam and Sinai. It may be helpful to remember that when the Old Testament, New Testament, and even especially the early part of the Book of Mormon speaks of the wilderness, it's often meant to be a desert wilderness. At the very least, it's a place uninhabited by people. Also, sin is simply the Hebrew name for the place. It's not referring to, say, a wilderness of wickedness or anything like that. So, as they go into the desert or wilderness, what happens? Let's start in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they've clearly run out of coconuts. I think you've run out of coconuts. (laughs) And they're beginning to starve. They're in a desert which means they have no food source, what is the Lord's solution? In verse 4, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Now notice that the Lord set some rules around this bread rained from heaven. The people are to gather a certain rate every day, In verse 5, it specifies that they should gather twice as much on the sixth day so that it sustains them through the Sabbath when no bread will reign. Right, but it's not just bread. Let's take a look in verse 9. And Moses spake unto Aaron, Say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass that as Aaron spoke unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at even the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. That sounds like more quail than they could handle that covered the camp. Let's go on to verse 14. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. Now, the word H-O-A-R, hor, means gray. In verse 15, And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Now, take a look at footnote 15a. The word manna comes from the Hebrew word manhu, which means simply, what is it? Perhaps in plainer English, The children of Israel looked out and said, look, it's a thing. (laughs) Can you imagine saying that, though, at the breakfast table? Mom, could you pass a little bit more, what is this? (laughs) In the next few verses, Moses instructs that everyone is to gather an omer of manna for each person. Okay, so what's an omer? Well, the Bible dictionary tells us that an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. 
just like it says in Exodus chapter 16, verse 36. So that clears that up. Um, uh, question, what's an ephah? Well, if we keep reading the Bible dictionary, we're told that an omer is about half a gallon or about two quarts. Or if you don't live in the United States, it's about 2.2 liters. Now, the Lord gives strict instructions about manna, and initially, his instructions aren't always followed. Right. Let's look in verse 19. And Moses said, Let no man leave of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left of it until the morning. And it bred worms and stank, and Moses was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. Okay, so whatever manna they gather, it will be for that day's eating. They are not to keep any of it for the next day. It turns out if you do that, it breeds worms and stinks. Which makes this cartoon of an Israelite vendor selling day-old manna very funny. <laughs> well, it also had to be embarrassing because after a while, I'm sure the people of Israel were very familiar with the smell of rotting manna. And so they could tell, ah, Bob kept some extra. <laughs> and any manna that is not gathered simply melts when the sun gets hot. It would seem that the Lord wanted a constant reminder to the children of Israel as to who is providing them food. In fact, as if this miracle wasn't enough, we already discovered that if you leave manna until the next day, it's ruined. But there are two exceptions to this rule. The first is talked about in verses 22 through 30. On the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, you are to gather two omers for every person, and the manna will not spoil the next day. But there will also not be any manna to gather on the Sabbath. This is such a great object lesson. Elder D. Todd Christofferson, in an article in the February 2015 Liahona, says, By providing a daily sustenance, one day at a time, Jehovah was trying to teach faith to a nation that over a period of some 400 years had lost much of the faith of their fathers. He was teaching them to trust him, to look unto him in every thought, doubt not, fear not. He was providing enough for one day at a time, except for the sixth day, they could not store manna for the use in any succeeding day or days. In essence, the children of Israel had to walk with him today and trust that he would grant a sufficient amount of food for the next day on the next day, and so on. In that way, he could never be too far from their minds and hearts. By the way, there's a great video that the church has, I'll put a link to it in the description, of these concepts from Elder D. Todd Christofferson. It's really great. So check it out, share it with your family. Now, the second exception to this rule of manna only lasting a day is mentioned in verses 33 and 34. Verse 33, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. This omer of manna that will be laid up before the testimony would later be kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. So while we don't have a great deal of information to determine what exactly manna is, 
we do get this description in verse 31. And the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So manna is small and round, as we read in verse 14. It's white, like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. That sounds like frosted flakes to me. Hmm, frosted flakes. Maybe it was small balls of coconut meat. (laughs) Quiet, you. And finally, we're told in verse 35, And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years, until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. And that brings us to chapter 17. The Israelites travel out of the wilderness of sin to a place called Rephidim. And now there's not bitter water like at Merah. That's good. There's no water. That's bad. That's true. Starting in verse 2. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Now there's a word we don't use too often anymore, chide. Check your footnotes. The people complained to Moses or strove with him. And later in verse 2, Moses is asking why the people are putting the Lord to the test. Yeah, hasn't he proven himself time and time again? And yet they are in need and they don't have an answer. So Moses brings the problem to the Lord in verse 4. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Sometimes perhaps we ask that question, Is the Lord there or not? True. And again, check your footnotes. Massa would mean testing, trying, or proving. Meribah would mean strife or complaint. Yeah. The seminary manual offers this note. Just as the requirement to gather manna can symbolize what the Lord requires of us today, the account of Moses striking the rock also has a symbolic meaning. The scriptures sometimes refer to Jesus Christ as the rock. Christ also refers to himself as the bread of life and a provider of living water. From an Enzyme article in December 1998, we get this insight from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks from an article called Nourishing the Spirit. He says, quote, We know that our physical bodies require certain nutrients to sustain life and to maintain physical and mental health. If we are deprived of those nutrients, our physical and mental vitality are impaired and we have a condition called malnutrition. Malnutrition produces such symptoms as reduced mental functions, digestive disorders, 
loss of physical strength, and impairment of vision. Good nutrition is especially important for children whose growing bodies are easily impaired if they lack the nutrients necessary for normal growth. Our spirits also require nourishment. Just as there is food for the body, there is food for the spirit. The consequences of spiritual malnutrition are just as hurtful to our spiritual lives as physical malnutrition is to our physical bodies. Symptoms of spiritual malnutrition include reduced ability to digest spiritual food, reduced spiritual strength, and impairment of spiritual vision, end quote. That's such a great parallel. That's great. And that's clearly what the people are suffering right now, at the very least, impairment of spiritual vision. Yeah. And you know what? In the same way that there are signs and manifestations of malnutrition, physical malnutrition, I think murmuring and complaining is probably one of the signs of spiritual malnutrition. That seems right to me. So now we have a new problem. For the first time since leaving Egypt, Israel is attacked by Amalek and his people. Let's take a look in verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. Now, we don't have a lot of information about why the Amalekites were attacking or even who they were, for sure. The Institute Manual provides this insight. The Amalekites may have been descendants of Esau. They attacked the Israelites in a most cowardly way, killing first the feeble, the faint, and the weary at the rear of the marching nation. This comes from the recap of this account in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. For this lack of respect toward God, the Amalekites were cursed by the Lord. The Israelites were subsequently commanded to utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Right. So in verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now notice that Moses is instructed to write this for a memorial in a book. Some scholars suggest that much, if not all, of the Old Testament was compiled centuries later and that their source material was simply oral tradition. Here's an example, though, of Moses being instructed to write something down and even to read it later as a reminder. Also, check the footnote on verse 15. Jehovah Nisai would mean, the Lord is my banner. Nice. So the rod of Moses becomes a symbol to the Israelites. If they could see that Moses was lifting the rod, 
they were inspired and prevailed. If the rod dropped or could not be seen, Amalek prevailed. In the October 1970 General Conference, President Harold B. Lee, who was then the first counselor in the first presidency, commented in this way, quote, I think that is the role that President N. Eldon Tanner, second counselor in the first presidency, and I have to fulfill. The hands of President Joseph Fielding Smith, president of the church, may grow weary. They may tend to droop at times because of his heavy responsibilities. But as we uphold his hands and as we lead under his direction by his side, the gates of hell will not prevail against you and against Israel. Your safety and ours depends upon whether or not we follow the ones whom the Lord has placed to preside over his church. He knows whom he wants to preside over this church, and he will make no mistake. The Lord doesn't do things by accident. He has never done anything accidentally. And I think the scientists and all the philosophers in the world have never discovered or learned anything that God didn't already know. His revelations are more powerful, more meaningful, and have more substance than all the secular learning in the world. Let's keep our eye on the president of the church and uphold his hands as President Tanner and I will continue to do. Close quote. That's such a great image. And for anyone who has served as a counselor in a presidency, be it a stake presidency, a local bishopric, elders quorum presidency, relief society presidency, even youth presidencies, there's that powerful image of the two counselors sustaining and holding up the president. Yeah, and it's great to remember this is a visual reminder that the Lord supports whom he's called. And in this case, he's using the hands of others. Well, that was an amazing lesson. The Israelites have made it out of Egypt. They're no longer in bondage. Yeah, and they're in the wilderness, and the Lord is going to prepare them for the promised land. I'm sure that won't take too long. Nah, they'll be there in a week. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll find out more about that next week. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about the children of Israel and Moses in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.